Good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we begin, actually continue, uh, a series that we kicked off last spring that focused on evangelism. Last year's was a part one in an emphasis on the New Testament teaching of doing good and thereby showing the love of God to our neighbors. Well, today we start part two, which isn't centered around our actions or service, but instead about learning how to share the actual message of the gospel. Thanks for joining us for these new lessons on how we as the church can be equipped with the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. I heard this morning uh, from one of our members that uh, a comment from the youngest grandchild Um, In listening to Christian music on the radio, she said, you know, I think it makes God's heart happy when we sing. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, I I think there's an innocence to young children whereby they don't carry some of the baggage that us adults have when it comes to representing a love for God. They're, They're free. They're unencumbered by a fear of man. To know that proclaiming a love for God is not something to be scorned or hid. It's just with innocence that they would declare, we we love Jesus. I can remember a time uh, working with the homeschoolers where uh, a young uh, first grader was being brought in and was telling all about how they go to church. And I can remember the mother feeling in this, you know, public presence, a little bit of embarrassment that, you know, we we, we don't talk about that. And it didn't happen, but I, I would I would have loved for the child to say, well, why? Why why don't we talk about religion? Why why can't we talk about Jesus to our neighbors? Now we as adults understand, right? <laughs> we know, well, you don't talk about politics or religion, right? Thanksgiving, Christmas, and that's kind of the world that we live in. A failure where tolerance can mean anything sinful except for that which is righteous. To talk about Jesus. I would imagine the answer might come back from the mother. Well, you, you know, it, it could offend somebody. You know, and we, we don't want to offend anybody. And I would love for a child to ask, well, why? Do you know that the message of Jesus is offensive to all other God's. The message that Jesus is the Lord and King. Them's fighting words to any other God, any other Lord, any other King. I looked at a poll that was uh, done back in October of last year that showed up on one uh, Christian magazine website. said that 85% of pastors expect that their congregation knows that all of us need to be involved in the work of evangelism and making disciples. 85% of pastors think that that's what's true. What, what do you think the poll is on the congregation side for whose job that it is? It was actually a little better than I thought. It's 53% of professing Christians think that that's their job. Um, a, a little over half have only ever heard of the Great Commission. Do you guys know what the Great Commission is? The very end of the book of Matthew, Jesus says, therefore, go make what? Go make disciples. I I would imagine if we were to do a poll here at Grace, I bet we would do a little bit better than the national average. But still shocking to me to think that that's 
Such a, such a difference between those who are in ministry and those who worship the Lord. In fact, it is said that 25% only think that it's a mandate for everybody. That's what we hired you to do, right? You're supposed to go tell everybody. It's not my job. You know, I, I work a real job, not like you. Yeah, you laugh. I've heard it, folks. <laughs> Isn't that true today? And it's, I think, maybe perhaps a convenient excuse so that you don't have to feel the pressure of our society upon the offensive truth that Jesus is the true king. It's just easier if that were someone else's job instead of myself. And I think we're all there, right? Is there some truth to this in your life? I know we've got some folks here that are just Jesus all day long, 24-7. But I think for the rest of us, we understand that there's a tension. We understand that it's hard sometimes. In fact, I'm willing to bet that for the majority of us, you have never been trained on how to share the gospel. You've You've heard the gospel. I actually, in my uh, working with churches, have discovered that the majority of Christians who come to church, they think that the word gospel means the four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Like, that's the gospel. The, the gospel comes from a Greek word, euangelion. Uh, angelos at the, at the root of it, which is a message. And the prefix at the beginning, meaning it's a good message. The gospel literally means, translated into English, good news. It's good news. Who doesn't like to share good news? I mean, imagine if there was a disease that was just killing people rampantly, but you knew the cure. You had the cure. You had the answer. Well, I'm, I don't want to offend them by it, though. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you share it? Wouldn't you shout it from the rooftops? Because the truth is we do live in a world with a disease. And there are people dying every day. Entering into an eternity without God when we have the cure. We have been given as um, physicians for the world with the message of the good news of the gospel. But sin, it leaves the world broken. In fact, we just got through a long series of looking at the brokenness of the invisible part of our lives. You guys remember, right? The, uh, navigating the soul was an effort for us to give attention to how you provide care, not just for your physical body, but for the invisible part of your nature as well. I won't review all of that there, but boy, sin, it does a number on us. It'll eventually kill you physically, but sin, it destroys you in your soul. It leaves you sick and broken where people are estranged in their relationships, frustrated, uh, developing destructive behaviors in their lives like addiction, weariness. They're scornful and spiteful. They're unforgiving. And when they look inside without Jesus, when they look, do you know what they see? It's empty. In fact, the Bible calls it dead. But you have the answer. We have the antidote. We have the cure. And it's found in Jesus Christ. I think uh, my goal will be that in the course of this series, if you are willing to uh, take notes, I, I have sermon notes that are provided for you. My hope is 
that we will together be able to be trained to know how to share the message of good news. And so I'm entitling this message series something that's a little bit different from the way it's usually presented. Um, I've taken classes on evangelism. There are books and books, shelves and volumes that have been written. And when it refers to the ability for you, not me, not the preacher, but you to be able to share the message of good news, they call it personal evangelism, which is probably pretty accurate, except that's not the picture that the Bible gives us. When it comes to the work of evangelism, God has dispersed his gifts throughout the church, which means this. It means not everyone in here this morning is going to be gifted to being very good at evangelism. I see some of you nodding. I see some of you, yeah, that's me. That's somebody else's job. And that's correct. The Bible says that the gifts to the church were given apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Right? That, that this is a diversity of gifting that is given to the church for the equipping of the church. And so I would like to offer you two thoughts. Uh, the first has to do here with uh, this word that I'm calling symphonic. You guys know what a symphony is? How many instruments play in a symphony? How many? All of them play. Are, are there any instruments in the symphony that don't do anything? Just sit there, close their books quietly. Not, not in a symphony. You, you see, in a symphony, everybody has a role to play. But the roles are different. In, in, in certain areas, you're going to have the melody line, the strong. In other areas, it's going to be loud. In some, it's going to be quiet and just supportive. But it's going to be unique and it's going to be diverse. But the single truth is everybody has a role to play. In fact, the word symphonic comes from two Greek words. Phone, which means sound. So not action. Not what we studied last year on doing good. That's, by the way, that's absolutely part of evangelism. But that's not part of this series. I'm not going to be preaching on service. The, the phone from the Greek ending here for phonic means the words. These are, this is actual sound. This is the, the message that we have to be trained and equipped to learn how to share. And there's a beginning prefix on here. Uh, soon is on the end. It's uh, pr- pronounced in Greek. It means together. It means with. Because this is the message in the New Testament. Paul understands this when he preaches, or well, message he gives to the church in Corinth. They, they were kind of bickering over to who they were following. And he says, you, you know what, Apollos... Uh, was part of it. Peter was part of it. I was part of it. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. When it comes to evangelism, very rarely will you have the role of harvester. And I feel like that's one error that has been brought out um, for so long on evangelism, that, that what we feel is this undue pressure that I, I got to save them. I got to get them to the point where they r- repent and convert and believe, and that's not how it works. You see, it's a symphony. It's all of us working in cooperation together with one another because sometimes you're the planter of the seed, and that's it. That's all you do. You have done your job well done. And then sometimes you are the waterer of the seed. So very rarely are you only the harvester, but 
This is the picture that I would like us to embrace, that as you see the title here for this series as symphonic evangelism, I don't want you to think necessarily of, you know, musical instruments. Instead, I want you to think that we all are participating together, and it takes the whole church to share the whole gospel. There's a second reason I want to devote time to this, and I'd like to use another metaphor. Uh, just give me a, just shoot your hand up real quick if you have any military experience that you've been in the military. So look around, quite, quite a few of you will understand this. No matter what uh, division that you are going into in the military, because there's a lot of diversity in the military, right? You've got some people on logistics, you've got some people on the front lines, you've got others who are in the offices. Uh, you, you've got a lot of diversity, a lot like the church. But every single person, no matter what regiment they end up in, is trained as a rifleman. They're trained on the basics of defensive combat, recognize certain things, and have this skill in common with everybody, regardless of if they ever end out on the front lines. That's the same thing that I'd like to do for the next couple weeks on evangelism. I would love for us all to be trained in evangelism regardless of if that is your unique spiritual gift and if you are ever out on the front lines. You guys with me on this? Kind of, kind of see why we, we want to go through this? Uh, I, I think statistics prove out we are very under-equipped when it comes to evangelism. So it's something that we all need to learn and pay attention to. And then uh, it's something that can only be done biblically when we do it in cooperation with one another because it takes the whole church to share the whole gospel. Okay, that's my introduction. You guys with me? Give me an amen if you're with me. Okay. We today are going to start at the very beginning. Same place that the apostles start when they share the message of good news. When they share the gospel, it begins not... With the Great Commission. This this might be the first time that you've uh, heard this, that that you've encountered this. Uh, The Great Commission shows up in Matthew 28, 19, and we covered it already. Jesus is therefore, go make disciples. But that's not where Jesus really begins. He actually begins in verse 18. Now you could turn there and follow along. Matthew 28, verse 18. I want to paint the picture for you. As you follow along, because I want you to see that at the very beginning, this is where we're starting for today. The very beginning is the message of Jesus as king. Now, I've, uh, I've made a big deal as we started in January. That's our theme for the year, right? That's what the whole resurrection is about. Repeatedly, we're going to see this theme show up in our worship. Jesus is king. Jesus is a king. Jesus, you're going to get sick of me saying it. Jesus is king. In Matthew 28, 18, the disciples are, uh, most of them are on board, but some of them are nervous. This is a pretty, this is a pretty um, a heavy task of going forth and evangelizing. And the text says that some of them doubt their own ability. I, I don't think we can do this. I don't want to pick on Thomas, but it's probably Thomas, right? You know, <laughs> just joke. And then Jesus says these words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Church, I want you to know that is really helpful news for you. 
If, if you're hearing this theme of evangelism and you're thinking, man, why did I come to church today? I am skipping next week and next series. All. If, if this makes you a little nervous, listen, you're not alone. The disciples felt the same thing. I can't do this. I, in fact, I've tried, and it is very hard to do this in our world. If you're feeling that, if you're anywhere on that spectrum this morning, I have good news. It doesn't depend on you. It is all on Jesus. Jesus speaks to his disciples in this moment of their doubt, and he says to them, really, really good news. Don't worry about it, guys. Don't don't lose sleep over this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples. That, That little phrase right there, the all authority phrase, is the long version of saying very simply, Jesus is king. He has all the authority. And so as the disciples then go forth to share the message of good news, that's the theme that they share. In fact, I'd love to show you this. I have a few verses here out of the book of Acts as they're sharing this. This is in chapter 2. Peter says, God raised this Jesus to life. We're all witnesses of it. Verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and And Messiah. In chapter 10, he says, And you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. This this then becomes kind of an identifier phrase. I almost think maybe the disciples became too familiar with it because you and I, we just read past it. You you, you and I reading the book of Acts, you're going to miss it unless you take time to really see. This is significant for them. That Jesus is Lord. Here's a couple other passages. Acts eleven seventeen. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how it just gets stuck on there? The, that's who he is. It's not believing in Jesus. It's believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, who, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? This other passage in chapter 11. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus Chapter 16, they replied, this, this is now the evangelistic call. Believe in, does it say Jesus? Hear me now. He doesn't say believe in Jesus. He says believe in the Lord Jesus. That's who he is. And you will be saved, you and your whole household. Uh, chapter 19, on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. All right. I know you're missing it. You're missing it, and you're missing it because you don't live in the first and second century. That's why we're missing it. This phrase in Greek, Lord, is the phrase kurios. It literally means one who is above, one who is positioned in authority. You could, use, you could insert the word chief, or you're super cool like boss. That's who it is. It's the one who's in charge. That's what Lord means. Now, if you lived in Rome... Come on, Romans, let's go back in time for a minute here. Put your togas on with me today, right? Let's go back in time. When you go out into the marketplace, when you go out into the public arena, who's in charge in Rome? Caesar Caesar is in charge. And in fact, that became a phrase not only on the lips of Roman citizens to be able to identify their allegiance. They literally printed it on their coins. Caesar, curios. Caesar is Lord. 
See, we just read it today because we come from a, a Christian uh, foundation in this country. And so it's, so it's it's easy for us to hear, you miss the scandalous nature of this phrase. Because you're not having to risk anything today to say it like they did back then. In fact, I'd like to share with you just one story from a disciple of John. His, his name was Polycarp. Polycarp is 86 years old. Can you believe it, Marv? 86 years old this guy is. And he's the bishop in the town of Smyrna. Well, the local officials and everybody there finally got sick of this Christian leader. Polycarp listened to the message from John. John listened to the message from Jesus. So you've got this like direct line. And what they do is they arrest him. And in arresting him, they threaten him because if they can flip Polycarp, they can get everybody else on board. You see, he's the leader. He's been the leader for years and years. And if they can flip him, we can get everybody else to stop this nonsense of calling Jesus Lord. Because remember, in Rome, who's Lord? Caesar's Lord. I want to read from you out of, uh, this is from the Apostolic Fathers, the martyrdom of Polycarp. Just very short here. It says, and now at last when he, this is Polycarp, finishes prayer, after remembering everyone we had ever come in contact with, both small and great. But he's being arrested right now. That's what's happening in the story. He remembers everybody. It was his time to depart. And so they seated him on a donkey and they brought him into the city on the day of a great Sabbath. Herod, the police captain, and his father Nicetes came out to meet him. After transferring him to their carriage and sitting down at his side, they tried to persuade him, saying... Why? What harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord? And just burning a pinch of incense to Caesar. What harm is there? In other words, to this effect. And then they say, and thereby saving yourself. Now, at first, he gave them no answer. But when they persisted, Polycarp said, you got to hear it in the voice of an 86-year-old pastor. He said, I'm not about to do what you are suggesting to me. Thus, failing to persuade him, they began to utter threats and made him dismount in such a hurry he bruised his shin as he got down from the carriage. And it gets worse from here. They ultimately uh, attempt to threaten him with animals. Uh, They try to burn him. And then they uh, pierce him through with a sword to kill him, but he does not recant off this tiny little word to recognize Caesar is not Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. I think this is a pretty important message for the church today, is it not? Have you seen the news? What's your news feed look like when you go online? There's an entire culture out there that wants to claim either the political bent of a particular viewpoint which ultimately stands upon self-lordship, is in complete conflict with the values of the church. Have you seen this? You know this is happening right now, right? There's an entire movement in our world that's been happening for about a decade of amplifying the message, even though it's hidden, even though it's cloaked in a little different language. Hey man, Caesar's Lord. Caesar's Lord. And the church... The church needs to lead with a very offensive message. Actually, let me, let me correct that for you because Jesus is Lord. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to be in the book of Romans for the next couple of minutes. Uh, I, I want to unpack a little bit of observation as to what this phrase means, that Jesus is Lord. And then we're going to work through some conclusions. Uh, so if, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And I'm going to make it my goal to move quickly through these observations. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to take notes. I mean, I don't go through the effort to make them, except that you would use them, uh, because it's my hope that these become for you a resource to go back to in this effort of our education, equipping, and training to be able to, to do this difficult task. All right, Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for the Israelites that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and they sought to establish their own. Can I, can I just pause there? Man, that's like a... A preacher reads that, and I mean, it's hard to pass that over right there, right? They, they don't want the righteousness that comes from God. They want a righteousness that they define. I define what is right and what is wrong. I'm the one that makes the rules for what is acceptable. Doesn't, by the way, doesn't that sound like the garden, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. God said, this is right and wrong. The devil lies, and then Eve and Adam decide, well, We'll just decide for ourselves. We will form our own form of righteousness. So this is the same problem. It says they did not submit. Boy, who likes to submit? Huh? They did not submit to God's righteousness. Verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. That's a, that's a whole other sermon, but that's a lot of good news right there. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses described it in this way. The righteousness that is by the law, the man who does these things will live by them. Let's, let's pause there again for a minute. How's that working out for you? Right? You, you, you know. You, you totally know the difference between right and wrong. So who's batting a thousand? Raise your hand. Hun, thousand percent. I, I, haven't, I haven't goofed up ever. Anywhere. Yeah, the man who does these things will live by them, except you don't do them. You don't, can't. So you're not going to live. You will die. So verse six, here's some good news. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. Verse 9, this is worth underlining. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess 
and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who bring the gospel. All right, there there is 10 or 12 messages all in this one. So I'm going to do my best to just give us the one that fits for today. But it begins by us looking at what does it really mean for Jesus to be Lord? Let let, let me offer to you, because did you catch that in verse 9? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is kurios, right? Lord, this is, this is the critical component, right? This is what's necessary. So what does that mean? Number one, it means Jesus rules. That's what it means. This is a whether you like it or not type of situation. Jesus rules, done. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's the truth. He, he, he is ruling and he is reigning right now. It's only a question of whether or not you fall under submission to his rule. D- does he rule in your heart? Or are you, like some of these Israelites who Paul loves, still seeking to establish a righteousness of your own? Because Jesus does rule. Secondly, Jesus owns everything. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord. Th- th- think, of a, think of a Lord who has... Uh, um, Fields and kingdoms and forests and animals, right? If you lived in uh, uh, feudal lands, you might call the person who sits in the castle your my liege, right? My, my lord, you, you would call them, right? Because they own it all. Well, guess what? Jesus owns it all. The, the, the devil plays like it's his. It's not the devil's. He's an imposter, uh, a, a fake prince who's laying claim to that which really belongs to Jesus. This from Colossians chapter 1. For in him, that's Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. So what's it mean for Jesus to be Lord? It means he owns it all. It means Jesus is God. This is critical to the message of the gospel, and it's one that we would miss on the, on the surface without catching it. Let me draw your attention back into the text, because in verse 9, it says, if you confess in your mouth, who, who is Lord? What's it say? Who's Lord? Jesus. Jesus is Lord. But then Paul uses an Old Testament quote. If you go down with me to verse 13, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul didn't write that. Paul's quoting a prophet. Paul is quoting the prophet Joel. Joel is the one who said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Back in Joel's day, was that Jesus? Who who is Joel talking about when he said calling on the name of the Lord? He's talking about Yahweh. In, In the prophet Joel's understanding, to call upon the name of the Lord is to call upon Yahweh. Except Paul here, he says... Jesus is Lord, which means Jesus is God. That's what that means. Now, we're going to see that that's substantiated here further as we go. But simply, I want you to know, if you claim Jesus is Lord, you you can't say that like the Muslims do. You can't say that like uh, folks in Judaism do. As a Christian, it means that, no, it means he's God. Jesus is 
God. All right, number four, Jesus defeated death. We celebrated that last Sunday at Easter. Um, And believe in your heart, this is verse nine, that God raised him from the dead. Again, so much could be said on that. Number five, what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? It means Jesus is the definition of righteousness. Look at me again back in verse four. I told you this was good news. Jesus is the end of the law. Give me a give me 60 seconds to explain that. The word end here in Greek doesn't mean like um, necessary. It doesn't mean like there's a there's a uh, I probably should have prepared more for how I'm going to explain this one. Um, it doesn't mean the end as though it's like the end of a movie. Uh, the, the word teleos here means it's the fulfillment It's like, it's the end, meaning the culmination. The end, meaning all of it is found complete in Jesus. That's what the the word, the end, means. And what that means for us today is that if Jesus is Lord, that means he is the definition of righteousness. For he is the fulfillment of the law. That's what verse 4 is trying to get get you to see. You, You can't keep it. Go ahead, try. You go home. You try today to keep the law. Call me for how long you last on that. Do you know who did it? Do you know who completed it? Was it you? It was Jesus. Jesus is the end of the law, which means Jesus is the definition of righteousness. Lastly, Jesus is king. That's what the word curios ultimately means. He's king. I want to show you in two passages in the New Testament how this gets explicitly shared. This from 1 Timothy 6 says, I charge you, Paul, saying, I charge you, keep this commandment without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and Lord of lords. This from the book of Revelation 19. On his robe, this is Jesus, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? It means that Jesus is King. What I'd like to do in uh, the remaining time that we have is walk you through what, the me- what that message means. The message of Jesus as King, it's, it must be shared because of love. At the very beginning of this passage that we read, if you look back in verse 1, who is it that Paul says he longs for? Who is is it Paul says he prays for? Don't let me lose you guys. I know there's a lot of information this morning. Hang with me here. Verse 1. My choir's got it. You guys got it? Paul is praying for the Israelites. Why? Why? Because he loves them. Because he loves them. Man, this is a sermon all on its own. Evangelism is not out of obligation. If you're pursuing evangelism because you feel guilty, you're doing it wrong. If you're pursuing evangelism because you have some external form of like obligation that you have to do this, you're doing it wrong. The message of Jesus as king, it's shared because of love. That's the source of why we all of us need to be trained in evangelism. Number two, the message of Jesus as king is lost because of self-rule. That's the number one way in which this message just peters out completely. And you'll see it right again in the text. 
He says he's zealous for them, but they did not know the righteousness that comes from God because they sought to establish their own. They wanted to rule. Now, do you know anyone in your world, in your life that feels that way? Let, 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 me get, let me get really real for you here for a minute, because here's the danger in church. I don't think everyone's saved. It, the Bible tells us that in the body, you're going to have wheat and tares, sheep and goats all together. And one of the critical components is having the failure and fear to announce publicly that Jesus is my king. You, you'll, you'll have, I, I watched this interview with uh, Elon Musk. You guys know Tesla guy, SpaceX. What's the other one, Luke? That He's got a bunch of businesses, right? So you, you, he, he was given an interview where uh, it was, a, it was a, um, a satirical interview with the Babylon Bee, but they said, hey, hey, Elon, we want you to do us this solid today. We want you to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing if the people who are big movers and shakers in our world came out publicly willing to risk offense for the name of Jesus's kingship. But Elon's answer was this. It was, you know, I, I, I like the values of Jesus. I, I don't want to stand in his way. That's, that's not your king then. You, 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 you may like the values that he has, but I don't really want to claim him as my king. In fact, you have this showing up in the Gospels. I, I, for all my life, I've missed this passage. It's in John 12. Watch this. It says, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. These are Pharisees. They, they believed in him. That's amazing, right? W- wouldn't any pastor be like, perfect Sunday. A bunch of people believe. But watch this. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved human praise more than praise from God. You guys see that in the world? I see that. That's a danger because if you want to destroy the message of Jesus as king, it all it takes is a little bit of self rule. I'd rather get praise for me. I love the praise of men. And I don't want to offend anybody because then I won't get the praise of men. Number three, the message of Jesus as king is established by God as factual. So this is simply there again in the text that God raised him from the dead, which means what? It means he's king. That's what it means. Jesus is not in the grave. You can go to Muhammad's grave. You can go to Buddha's grave. Can't go to Jesus's grave. Number four, the message of Jesus as king is Personal. Jesus says in Matthew 16 to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And then they're all spitballing. Well, some people think you're blah, blah, blah. Another thing. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? (laughs) This is the one that matters. You you don't get to heaven someday and say, well, can I come in because so-and-so believed? Uh, What what do you believe? Look look with me back into the passage here. Verse 9. If... Who confesses with whose mouth? You with your, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in whose heart? Your heart, that that God raised from the dead. You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. This, This message of Jesus as king has to be personal for you. Number five, the message of Jesus as king 
will change anyone's life. This is a really good one today. Maybe this is you. Maybe this is someone that you know who simply says, yeah, but pastor, you don't know me. You don't know what my life is like. You don't know what I've been through. How could God ever forgive somebody like me? Just look at my past. Look at all of the things that I have done. And you think God would love me? No, 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 pastor. I, I, I don't want to stand in Jesus's way. I like his values, but I don't, I don't know if he could ever, ever forgive me. Watch what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy. He says, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to this service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and in unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. Boy, that's good news for us today, church. We need to hear this because the message of Jesus as king can change anyone. Look look within the text again, verse 12. Look what it says. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Jesus is for everybody. You you don't got to belong to a certain club or have a certain skin color or a certain pedigree or heritage. Jesus can change anyone. And I would submit to you, uh, church, that he has to. Jesus must change you. Again, this is a whole other message in and of itself, but there's a passage in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Hold on, pastor. I thought you said that was the whole deal. Jesus is king, right? Lord. They're doing it. Jesus says, not everybody who just says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. Why? Because they've been changed. Because they're not the same. They're not who they were. Um, the, The message from the book of James in the... In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by work, by evidence, by action, what is that faith? It's dead. So look again at this observation. The message of Jesus as king will change who? Anybody. Anybody's life. All right, last one. Thank you all for hanging in here with me. The message of Jesus as king, it must go to the hurting and to the lost. And so we have the ending of our passage here. Uh, the Apostle Paul in verse 14 saying, how are they going to call in one they haven't believed in? And how, how are they going to believe in the one that they've not heard? And how are they ever going to hear unless someone tells them? And how is that person going to go unless they are sent to go? And so it's with this that I want to build some practical applications for us today. This is where we're going to end for this morning on this beginning message when it comes to the great commission when it comes to evangelism you don't start with going making disciples do you know what you start with jesus is what king that's where we start he's lord he's king he's king in my life and so the very first thing you need to do is pray that's the very first thing you need to do uh this may be a prayer because you know you're on the weak end of the spectrum of evangelism i i don't like talking in front of people you can't make me go up front i ain't gonna ever gonna do it maybe that's why you need to pray Or maybe you have the type of um, field that's really hostile. And don't come to me with that religion. The people in work around you just toxic all the time. You know what you should do? 
You should pray. That's where it starts. I have a lot of verses I want to share on that. I'll skip them for now. Number two, you've got to answer this question. Who has God placed on your heart? Where is God sending you? Now remember, you can't do it alone. This is symphonic. You, we, we all are in this together. We are the body of Christ together to proclaim this, but I can't go where you are called to go. You can't go where I'm called to go. So where is God calling you? Remember, evangelism, it starts with love. When you close your eyes, say, Lord, who, who have you put in my life? Where does your heart leap with love for somebody? I know there's someone. All you got to do is ask God and he'll show you. But you have to answer that question as much as I do. And lastly, this is critical. It's as simple as this. You share with your mouth that which is in your heart. And for every Christian, it's the message that Jesus is the king.